welcome to Discourse, the Religious Studies Project's monthly look at how the media is talking about religion. It's a new month, start of a new year. I'm Dr. Michael Munnick from Cardiff University. I'm hosting this month's episode. Uh, just a little bit about me, the media religion focus certainly there. I'm a sociologist of media and religion, and I work at Cardiff University with the Centre for the Study of Islam in the UK. And with me, we have Beth Singler and Richard Newton. Beth, do you want to introduce yourself for us, please, just real briefly? Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I'm Beth Singler. I am the Junior Research Fellow in Artificial Intelligence at Homerton College at the University of Cambridge. But I always like to try and point out to people that I'm not a technologist. I'm an anthropologist. And I came from a background of religious studies, in particular, the study of new religious movements. And people's minds sometimes a little bit blown by this combination of this very modern technology, artificial intelligence with religion. But I'm here to say those two things are very much connected. Excellent. And I'm sure uh, lots of appetite when you present papers at conferences because everyone's just like, tell me more about this thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Richard, please introduce yourself for the. Sure. Uh, My listeners. name is Richard Newton. Uh, I teach at the University of Alabama. I'm assistant professor of religious studies there. I'm also the editor for the Bulletin for the Study of Religion. And uh, my background uh, in terms of research is an area I call the anthropology of scriptures. So I'm very interested in the way that people use and devise and appeal to cultural texts in such a way that the texts um, are not only things that they read, but those texts also seem to read them back. And I'm interested in the ways that uh, differences made and drawn around those dynamics. Awesome. Well, that's great. Maybe a great place to start with the trick for the Discourse podcast is that we're all contributing stories from the month that we find interesting, either that religion is a feature of or that religion studies can somehow speak into. I mean, think about speaking into text and text speaking to us. We had Martin Luther King Jr. commemorated this month. Uh, tell us about the stories that you were noting from that time. So right now in this you know 2022 year, I think we are seeing a rise in public interest in issues of civil rights, especially around race, especially around Black Lives Matter here in the United States. And one of the ways that this is uh, taking form is a, a relook, a renewed interest in um, some of the ways that the United States has been um, thinking about this sort of civil rights trajectory. And so Martin Luther King Jr. is sort of an icon for that in the American imagination. And recently, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a journalist who's perhaps now best known for her work on what was called the 1619 Project, which is a uh, sort of a, a look at how the American National Project was built on um, the institution of slavery and how that can be charted in interdisciplinary ways. Um, she received a bunch of fanfare for that as well as a bunch of criticism, and she was invited to speak uh, for an MLK or Martin Luther King Jr. Day event and when she gave her speech, unbeknownst to the audience, she took a whole string of quotations from Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and knitted them together into a single speech, uh, saying things that people probably would have assumed came from herself, from Nicole Hannah-Jones, being quite uh, critical of capitalism, of nationalism, of racism. And then, lo and behold, by the end of the speech, uh, as well as from her tw Twitter followers, people learned that these were actually quotations from Martin Luther King Jr. And so Martin Luther King Jr., who's known for saying, I have a dream, and, and that people wouldn't be judged by the color of their skins, but the content of their character, all of a sudden now is this hypercritic of 
um, certain social institutions that we thought, well, if he's an American hero, he should be about all of these. Truth be told, the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. was that he was a, a social critic in, in ways that a lot of people who claim him today would find uh, very uncomfortable. And she wanted to lay that out and say, if we're going to have a conversation about race, we need to do it on terms that present King as he probably was, at least through his own writings, which was pretty critical of capitalism and of racism and hypernationalism. It's so interesting to that because I think about how could you miss that about Martin Luther King Jr.? How could you miss that critical element? And obviously, someone associated with the civil rights movement is about progressing the narrative from where it is to where it could be. And that will necessarily involve critique of America as it is constituted. Where do you think that came from, that surprise from people that these words should have come from his pen and from his mouth? Well, I think that one of the telltale ways that uh, we see um, cultures deal with critique is, one, assassination or the killing of said critic, but then co-opting that critic into uh, a champion for what's left, right, for the empire that's left. So, you know, one could think of, I mean, King made this quite clear in his sermons, right, that Jesus was crucified, and then Jesus was sort of commodified. And what do we do with that? I think the same thing happened with King. Um, King was persona non grata for the U.S. government. I mean, he was he was seen as a very controversial controversial figure. He was uh, spied upon. He was, you know, there's FBI files on him. You know, the, the government was looking into him and, and bugging his phones and all these things. Uh, that we forget that that was very much his life, very much part of his ministry and, and his experience and informing what he was doing and saying. And the king that people can celebrate after his assassination is a king that is sanitized for popular consumption. And so much like this speech gives us sort of a, a Twitter thread of choice quotations from Nicole Hannah-Jones' part, American memory of King is also a string of choice quotations, usually ones that are seen as safe enough for the empire to still stand. Um, and so I think that's what leads to the controversy that that the king that is remembered or the king that is commemorated is a king that has been um, redacted and made available in a way that doesn't ruffle too many feathers. When you get another string of quotes compared to that, it's like, oh, wait, what happened here? Yeah, absolutely. Beth, did you uh, have any thoughts on that story and that 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 yeah, commemoration? Um, so, sorry, I certainly feel like I'm coming at this subject slightly as an outsider, being British, and it's not uh, as significant a date in our calendar. Although we're very privileged here at Homerson College that our new principal, Lord Simon Woolley, has been very involved with the act- with activism in the UK and uh, considers himself a, a sort of devotee or follower of the, the philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. So uh, coming from that stance, but I was very struck by um, some parallels with um, previous events. So uh, a couple of years ago in 2017, NPR tweeted out elements from the Declaration of Independence and Trump supporters at the time reacted quite badly and saying, you know, this is provocative, this is liberal left-wing agenda. And it's just, it's very interesting to me that sort of unreadness of some significant texts that are foundational for cultures and communities that actually they become 
um, objects in themselves, but they are not critiqued. They're not read through as much as they could be. And I think that was very predominant in the Trump era that I hope we're moving out of, but you know, <laughs> who knows that even Trump himself, when he was asked questions about what is your favorite aspect of the Bible, which was your favorite verse, your favorite chapter. And he just gave these very broad generalizations of it's all amazing. It's all great. And there's again, that sense of unreadness that you hold up the Bible as, a, as an object in itself, but not necessarily engage with the text. And that's not true, obviously, of all Trump supporters or all right-wing people or all conservatives, but that element seems to come out here that we're shocked by details because we just see something as a whole, as an abstraction, instead of actually engaging with that text. So I, I was very struck by that, and I think it was it was a wonderful moment to reflect on how we read or don't read particular things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the founding documents, and one thing that I think about is I, I teach my, my undergraduate students about Robert Bella and civil religion in America, and he's looking at texts such as uh, presidential speeches and, you know, uh, uh, the Declaration of Independence as these documents that are intoned with that same religious significance and intensity that Holy Scripture would do so. I mean, I don't I don't think it's off base. I don't think that Bella would even disagree to say that, you know, the speeches, the, the, the really well-known speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. can hit in that same category of those really important documents that kind of set that focus and that purpose. Um, so there is that sense that everyone wants to share in it, but then the other part of Bella's commentary is that then the particularities of those, the moments and the, the religious call and demand on the, uh, the, the people hearing that is very much watered down so that it is acceptable to this broad palette of Americans in the 1770s as much as for the 1970s, the 2020s. Um, so how you know the we we seize on the aspects that make this message broadly applicable and lose the particularities that could bring you know Jesus talking about bringing not peace but a sword you know that there are uh, the the further you drill down on it the the, the more demanding those texts are of you so we're getting a, away from the generalized aspects in order to really get to the 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 heart of the the transformational message in there. Mm-hmm. But I think also the, the, the place where I would probably challenge the, and th- this goes along with sort of my, my general challenge of like civil religion or, or centering a kind of uh, a notion of religion doing a certain kind of work that is somehow different than others, is that if we, if we take King's words in this case and note that they have been canonized, right, then we can start to think about how other dynamics that we associate with canon are at play with, with King's works. And that is, for instance, that any sort of cultural text or scripture that has been seen as good for a community to appeal to has to have a new message or bring a sort of renewed, have an opportunity for a renewed message so that you can juxtapose it with different contexts and historical moments and whatnot. And it seems like you're reading it again for the first time, to quote like Marcus Borg, famous uh, biblical scholar, that the idea that this is not just a book that is stagnant in history, or this is not just a text that's stagnant in history, but has something that can continue to be said, especially when remixed and matched against other moments, other verses and whatnot, is what keeps it fresh and what keeps cultures going. And so I I don't know if it's so much that it's just a case of one group sanitizing a message versus not hearing the critical edge, but rather the way that we all kind of push and pull and operationalize these framings and terms upon which everyone's fighting for, a lot of people are fighting for. Because at the same time, one could read critics of King and say, well, his message is just as 
accommodationalist or benefits from the privileges of living in America or some other capitalist society as anyone else. Um, you know, certainly a Malcolm X has said such things, um, you know, that Ma- Martin Luther King Jr. is not that far from X, Y, or Z person. Um, we get to draw those lines of difference when it suits us. And I think that's what we get to watch happening here when one group says, oh my gosh, I'm surprised that King was like this. I think we do the same thing with our laws. I think we do this when um, we we look back on something that we heralded as a part of tradition. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh no, we don't like that. That makes us feel behind the time somehow. And then we got to figure out how to, to shave off bits, smooth off at smooth edges so that it works for us and we can keep working with it. Yeah. And the, the question that's always that my you know, working with students to sort of challenge all the time is, you know, is religion just there to make us happy and feel good, right? You know, it's uh, it, that's not the only purpose of it. I want to turn, Beth, to a story that you wanted to bring up, uh, uh, and this relates to your research work on artificial intelligence. So tell us about what was happening this month in the media that uh, speaks to that that you'd noticed. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this follows on from your last thought there about the operationalization of religion. What is religion for? Uh, So this is a story that came from Vogue magazine. um, And I want to preface this by saying I have huge admiration for this this woman that she can actually manage to successfully manage two careers, and I'm struggling with one. Uh, But this is Leo Cole, who is described in this piece as the model combining artificial intelligence with religion, that she has been working alongside being a successful model model uh, on her computer stuff, as she calls it, where she's uh, coding artificial intelligence to produce what she calls a robot rabbi or robo rabbi. Um, and I, I find obviously this is very much up my street with the, the discussion of AI and religion. Um, but I think it's useful for thinking with in terms of what do we expect a priest-like figure, a rabbi, a, a Church of England priest, any different denomination, doesn't matter. But what do we think a priest-like figure is for? Um, the artificial intelligence that she's talking about, she makes some rather grand claims about how uh, AI expresses some forms of boundlessness um, and that can express genuine spirituality. And I would question those from a technological perspective. But it's that her robo-rabbi seems to do something particularly simple, but she sees this as as the equivalent of what a rabbi does. And that raises all sorts of questions like... uh, Cole's, it's Leo Cole, that's the model's name. Uh, Cole's AI program will give a person a 10-day challenge that encourages a person to be charitable, as though this is the purpose of a rabbi, to give you specific tasks like the quantified self that we're getting engaged with when we, I have one on my own wrist, actually. We have a pedometer that encourages me to do my 10,000 steps a day. Is that what a priest is for? Um, she does talk about how she think, thinks AI will eventually have human-like abilities, as though this is on a path onwards towards that direction. But we, you know, we've got to keep going back to this conception of what religion is for. Is it to provide uh, specific information on a specific epistemic frame? Is the priest just there to answer specific questions? And in which case, then this form of robo-rabbi actually successfully does that. Uh, other examples would be the Church of England's Alexa um, add-on that you can have where you can ask Alexa to teach you things like the Lord's Prayer. That's from the Church of England, and it's been pretty successful. But again, it's just an interaction between a user and an AI that is all about answering specific questions. So we go back again 
So what is a priest for? Are they replaceable by robots? And then you can get into bigger questions as well about the future of work more generally construed, the future of humans more generally construed. So there's lots in here that I think is really interesting. And I'm pleased to see that uh, a magazine like Vogue is engaging with this topic, but even if I do have some queries about the success of the technology. Richard, any thoughts when you had a look at that story? Yeah, what it, what immediately sort of sparked my curiosity was the the way training can be demonstrated with AI uh, about how to use a text or apply a text or reading and, and give it to someone in their time of need. And it reminded me uh, very quickly of sort of the history of search engines, right? So we're, we're well aware today of like Google. And in fact, maybe we're far too aware or not aware enough of, of how like we can put in a word and then Google brings us what we need it to bring. Right. Um, And I've been talking to some of my kids about my younger kids about this, that like I can remember when when you search for something for the Internet, it wasn't that you just put something in and then the closest, you know, if you had a question or whatever, like the closest uh, answer just appeared. Right. That illusion wasn't there. It was more like there were directories and it was like going to the right directory to find what you need. Um, It was much more like an index rather than a librarian, if you will. Mm -hmm. And. Um, I, I wonder sort of what models are being used here for a religious authority. And also when we think about religious authorities next to something like text, right? And I think, Beth, you mentioned like the sort of boundless nature of it, right? Or the appearance of the boundlessness. Yeah. Someone like Jonathan Z. Smith might say, well, the, the illusion of the boundless nature of the text is really just a, a, a space for the, I think he calls it like the scribal elite um, to show all the different ways that the text can be used, right, in a very bound way. It's much more like um, a divination of the text. Like, let me look around and put these things together. And in this combination, it's, these words are going to look like they speak to you in this moment. And I wonder, you know, using that kind of idea, is Cole, after, is Cole thinking about religious authority, especially over texts, like a web directory or like a librarian? Mm-hmm. Um, and and how do people often see religious authorities in that way? Um, more like a librarian or more like a web directory? Do they know, does the authority just know where all the information is because they're so well-suited to find it? Or is it like they can put you in the right categories and boxes and and you do your work there? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a question about also the boundlessness of the human as well. What is it we think the human is capable of? And with AI, what are we trying to replicate when we say we're creating artificial intelligence? What is the aspect that we think we can reach and get towards? Which is why I think it's actually a very limited understanding of the role of the religious leader, because it's it's that interaction is just, it's it's a... Uh, it's an ask and answer interaction and there's so much more that goes on when you engage with a faith representative that I don't think AI can get to that point. It can simulate something that looks like it because it responds to you, but it's not providing the same interaction in the growth of relationship that someone with the faith perspective would have with their religious leader. So again, it's, I question that boundlessness of AI. It's actually extremely narrow. Uh, specific applications right now can't do all the things that humans can do. And to, to assume that they will one day is to have a very distinct view of the direction of the technology in the future. Yeah, I mean, a, a question I thinking about, obviously the questions you could ask, you know, how do I recite the Lord's Prayer or even what does this passage mean? But it comes down to, you know, what happens to me when I die? And it may be even advanced to regurgitate the words that are going to provide the answer to that question. But then what does that mean? 
You know, uh, uh, we can very easily imagine that being the next question that you would ask the real rabbi, the real religious leader that you're seeking some sort of solace from at that moment. Um, and I'm not sure that the tech is at all equipped to do that. Um, I was also wondering about audience and who Cole imagines is going to be making use of these kind of technologies. Um, it seems to me that the, the people that we be most equipped to make good use of that are people who are already kind of on board with the project and almost don't need to ask these questions because they, they know those answers already. Anyone who's kind of a novice or, or curious about the, the, the faith, um, I would imagine they'd be reluctant to put that question to a robot. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, though. Do you, do you have a sense about the audience at the user end of, of these technologies? Yeah, not not specifically this one, but there is more material on the Church of England's Alexa skill and who, how many uploads and how many uses it has and what kind of questions are being asked and the percentage of, of things that are being asked about. And a lot of the time it is quite simple questions about, you know, where can I find my local church? Can you teach me the Lord's Prayer? Um, I remember actually with the press conference for it, they were very clear that it's not Alexa with this update praying for you. So there's a distinction there. There's not a robot priest in that sense, but it would merely recite the Lord's Prayer and then you could learn it off rote from having heard it. But there was also a chance that the adverts showed uh, a mother and a child um, and the mother requests that uh, Alexa recite the um, a grace before eating. Uh, so there's that sense, there's a slippage there when the voice as well is not the usual Alexa voice, it's pre-recorded people praying. So there's, there's slippage there between where is the human and where is the robot or the AI system and where do we draw those boundaries in these sorts of interactions. Uh, so the audience is unclear with this one in particular, I think because it's about, um, the article explains that it's about finding a person's birth parsha. Uh, it's a Torah portion with a lesson that starts with a person's birthday. Um, there's a certain aspect to that that's going to be finding people who are very specifically interested in that kind of form of conjunction of dates and events in the Torah. Uh, so you're going to have to come with some partial information. But the, a lot of the discussion around robot priests is about more general applications of whether you know we would ever see a point at which more people attend to, to a robot priest than a human priest in whatever faith. And again, it goes into questions about how we manage... Um, the decline of attendance, uh, problems with recruiting for the p- priesthood in the in the UK. That's a particular aspect that we we see in the Church of England, but it applies to so many other faiths as well. So there's questions about inheritance and legacy, and how do we transmit information onwards? But to again frame religion purely as transmission of information about a particular worldview misses out on so many other aspects of religion. Hmm. Yeah, I recall about that. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So with the expertise or the various competencies that we often associate with um, priests and other you know, sort of comparable figures, I wonder what the what the, the sort of comparison, maybe going backwards, helps us understand about that. Because I could imagine a situation, like taking Parsha, for instance, where one could think about uh, rabbinic training or seminary training or, or the like as a sort of instruction in the algorithm of how to understand the human experience, right? Like that, mm-hmm. are there certain things that could be offloaded to, uh, you know, a, a computer to a robot that mm-hmm. could handle those sorts of things so that, you know, I mean, obviously you can sort of move to the economic, as you were speaking, Beth, about the sort of like how, what problems would those solve for, you know, clerical institutions and the like, but, you know, can those things be offloaded to, to a robot? Like I, we've seen some of this already in like therapy, 
right? Like people can download apps to help them work through various um, treatment protocols about uh, emotional response and well-being and the like. And then that takes things away from you know, that. You can handle certain business there. So when you go to a, a therapist, you can spend your time doing something else. Same thing with the doctor, right? Not just seeing doctors on Zoom and whatnot, but there you can go through protocols where there are a battery of questions you answer, let alone, you know, you have your pedometer, whatever else sort of assistive device on you that's measuring your, your vitals. And then the doctor can spend that time doing other things. I mean, mm. does... Is there a sort of algorithmic nature thus to what we associate with what it is that um, these sort of ecclesial clerical elites do? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because you could in some ways describe religion as a form of technology as well. It's a, it's a device, human-made, that helps us navigate this world and for many people our assumptions about the next world as well. So yes, I mean, in that sense. But the problem with algorithmic thinking is that it's very difficult in that mode to break into new space. It's very difficult to be dynamic and original because algorithmic thinking relies on prior data. So this is where we get so many flaws and problems with AI systems because of what's inputted. And obviously, there's so many examples of where algorithmic bias leads to bad outcomes for human beings. So we need to be careful, not that humans are without their own forms of algorithmic bias as well, but it, it doesn't allow necessarily for those breakthroughs of originality and new thoughts and new ways of doing things that would necessarily be a part of that human interaction. Um, also, I think intuitively, a lot of people have... Uh, have drawn a line somewhere in their interactions with technology where they think it's better for humans to do certain things. And in my conversations with people of many, many different faiths, they're quite keen that this is an area that roboticization, robomorphization and anthropomorphization of AI and robots doesn't happen, that we actually keep some things privileged for humans, which you could argue is a form of you know human exceptionalism. But I think religion has within it human exceptionalism built in because that's the story that we're telling ourselves about what it means to be human and where humans come from and what we're for that that actually feels very much like a protected space for lots of people of faith great well interesting and interesting to see where the technologies go uh thank you for bringing that story uh the story that i wanted to bring is one again from here in, in britain and my own research work deals a lot with muslim engagement with news media processes uh, initially as you know, sources, although I'm hoping to explore more about Muslims working as journalists and so being part of the news creation rather than, uh, well, sources are also part of the news creation, but in the sense of a journalist coming and ringing them up and asking them questions. Uh, so um, this month, uh, LBC Radio, which is a private talk radio station in the, the capital, uh, terminated its contract early with one of their presenters, a guy called Majid Nawaz. And uh, for those who are watching or maybe in the, the UK soup, although I think he's had some resonance in uh, the United States as well, uh, Majid Nawaz was a, you know, a, it's easy to say controversial figure, uh, but we'll go with that for, for shorthand purposes. Um, a, a young British Muslim who was drawn into the orbit of a group called Hizbut Tahrir, uh, which is considered an extremist group. I think even many governments would consider the group to be a terrorist organization um, and was active in that, uh, brought in through you know, uh, recruiting activities in the east end of London. Uh, got him into difficulty with uh, authorities. And for a while, actually, in, in Egypt, he was in prison. Uh, but he came out uh, in 2005 
and uh, very much a, a different man. Uh, him and also another uh, East London uh, member from uh, in his uh, his 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 but al tahrir all right had it earlier um ed hussein who uh, they also came as kind of these reformed radicals who were now working on um counter extremism narratives and uh given credibility in government security circles because they were muslim themselves and so that insider perspective was seen obviously to be useful in understanding for example this radicalization process and we're talking post 9/11 especially then in 2005 you had the July 7 uh, bombing on the London transit system so uh, this perspective was seen as very urgent for the government of the day i won't dwell too much on the narrative the the think tank came up received government money to do its research work. Uh, and many Muslims in Britain were very upset about this because it was seen to be working with government on the process of revilifying and uh, turning Muslims into suspect communities. Uh, and, you know, abetting an idea that there was something, you know, wrong, criminal even, about uh, uh, what might say a devout or a faithful or even just an everyday Islamic perspective, choices to grow a, a beard put on a hijab uh, um, for those who weren't to be converting into Islam uh, were seen as a you know, red flag and suspicious activity. Uh, nonetheless, now as was dis- in the media as discussions and what interested me about his person was that I, I mentioned the diversity of Muslim sources. Uh, there's a discussion in sociological circles about this monolith quality for Islam that it's seen as journalists painted as one thing and the Muslim is one kind of person. And when you see that diversity in in internal discussions about what it means to be a good Muslim, or uh, I think that's healthy in in demonstrating that there isn't that monolithic block quality to it, that essentialism, but uh, it it gets far enough that uh, uh, Nawaz definitely became sort of persona non grata for most Muslim uh, communities. Uh, Even the the government eventually stopped putting money into the group, the Quilliam Foundation that he was with. for a while, he was the candidate of record trying to get a parliamentary seat for the Liberal Democrat Party. And then he was picked up by the talk radio as one of these shock jock types, the call-in types who do that. So um, that figure is meant to be inflammatory and controversial and strong. Uh, and that, I think, probably suits the personality of someone like Majid really well. Uh, but he started getting very much down the line in the last year, a couple of years. Uh, you know, the anti-vax thing seemed to be what kind of got him in the end, um, increasing statements that were causing concern for the people who were on side with his ideas already. You know, I like what you're doing here, but I'm not so sure about these narratives you're bringing forward. And ultimately, uh, other presenters in the radio station were calling him out through Twitter, uh, the Twitter battles going as they did uh, led to his early dismissal from his seat. Um, so uh, the, the the person of that source journalist actor, a public persona in British Muslim landscape uh, has reached, I mean, who knows where he goes to from here, Substack apparently, but uh, um, what happens to these kind of figures and, and what does that speak to the landscape of the people speaking from within and about Islam in Britain? I don't know if you had any reactions to the, the, the story or maybe what you knew already of uh, Majid Nawaz or other aspects of the story. I mean, I think what struck me is that where the tipping point was, 
that he's obviously a very controversial figure and he's been saying very controversial things and he's been causing people to be upset. But in this current stage we are with the pandemic, misinformation about vaccinations is the thing that tips this over and he lost his job. And it says a lot about the implementation as well of social media, as you're saying, there's a Twitter wars between presenters, that the acceleration of people's uh, knowledge about him comes about because of these networks of interaction online. And for me, that's sort of more the aspect that I'm familiar with than actually the, him himself. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting, the dissemination of information and misinformation and what people find acceptable um, going forward at the moment. Yeah, and especially in a situation where uh, I don't know what the narrative is like in the United States, but in, in Britain, we have this idea that there's uh, concerns, for example, that uh, uh, black minority ethnic populations are a uh, problem somehow in their resistance to taking up the vaccine. There was real uh, work to get outreach into those communities, find leaders who would say the vaccine's okay. In Muslim circles, a lot of people talking about the vaccine being halal, it's permissible, don't worry about this uh, cabinet ministers who identify as Muslim going into the spaces and making statements, uh, mosques being used as vaccination centers. So um, I wonder to the extent to which now as being seen for some as from a concern problem community, speaking this very strong anti-vax line also is uh, tying into broader narratives of suspicion. Yeah, I, I think the, especially around the vaccine, or I guess most recently around the vaccine, um, we are seeing the risk, it was probably the wrong word, but the, um, the complexity of diversity. You know, as popular as it is to say, we want a diverse range of opinions and viewpoints and ideas on things. We want to look at a diverse range of histories. We want to look at a diverse set of experiences to make sense of what's going on in the world. That doesn't jive well when you want to get a very specific me uh, message out and have a very certain specific response to it. And I, I was thinking specifically when it comes to the vaccine and the black population in the United States, um, there was great concern about black people being reticent to get a vaccine because of uh, the history of the United States, early 20th century, in which there were studies done on black people, actually not far from where I live uh, in Alabama here. Uh, and the the idea was basically that there was there was a treatment available for syphilis and black people were tested upon and not given said treatment and thus suffered as a result. And this led to a sort of mistrust. So it was said in the black community uh, around health care. And thus, when we get to the current public health crisis, um, black people would be reticent to get the COVID vaccine. When you look further at this, there's all sorts of examples in which black people have uh, historical reasons as to mistrust the the public health community in the United States and the treatment of it. Um, and that that example, though, was probably not one that was comparable. And in fact, one of the things that happened was a descendants of the people who were tested upon um, in that ex the sort of Tuskegee uh, incident that I was describing were saying these two situations are completely different. Go get the vaccine and save your life kind of thing. Um, but But what this confusion says to me is that um, the idea, the discourse around diversity is just far more difficult and cumbersome than institutions who want to use that or deploy that discourse uh, want to admit. And so it's great to have like freedom of speech until 
your institution says, no, this is the speech we want out there because like, this is what's important and everything else is fake news or whatever. Um, I'm not saying I support uh, the, the example that you brought up, but I do think this is the tension that we're at, uh, especially around um, media companies and government agencies and the like. Uh, and and it's it's very difficult. It sounds like for the UK, uh, particularly like when we look at the Blair administration, kind of tapping this guy's shoulder and saying like, "Hey, be our representative." And then now it's like, "Whoa, hold on." Um, yeah, you're with us until you're not with us, right? <laughs> yeah, and it also is just you can't speak for us. Yeah, where those limits are because uh, you know it's a commercial private talk radio station, and yet they are very much in that space of well for whatever reason, if it's a social understanding of who their base is or just that broad UK cultural expectations, but even for that more kind of right-leaning commercialized media space, the basic message is vaccines are important to get this for public health of everyone. And so, uh, whereas I think in other contexts, the, the, the messages are, there's a bit more divisionable, you know, media lines, we're right leaning and we're generally in favor of freedom, uh, you know, and, and in choice, uh, don't want the government to be telling us what to do here that, that, that community exists for sure in Britain. Uh, but I think that the, it's seen as mainstream enough that even, you know, these spaces would not brook having uh, a speaker who is continuing to push that that line. Mm. Although it's it's interesting and it's not quite the same topic and I don't think the BBC would support an anti-vax message but recently there was a story about the policy amongst the BBC to um demonstrate objectivity by having people on two sides of an argument and the example given was mm-hmm. flat earthers that they would provide a platform for flat earthers along the arguments of saying we need to understand these people, but in that space, it's very easy to slip from we need to understand people who make these claims to these claims are being made on the BBC and this is support and that ha- could be how it's disseminated. And it, there's, a, there's a phrase, and I'm going to probably get it wrong, but the, the, the purpose of journalism is not to hear from both sides of the story as to whether it's raining, but to look outside and see yeah. whether it's raining. Like You don't need one person saying it's raining and one person saying it's not raining. You actually need to fact check this and find out if it's raining or not um so i think it's a slightly different account because uh the bbc certainly has been pro-vaccination we get demonstrations of how many people are being vaccinated every day and figures on our screens but that that pursuit of objectivity when it platforms people who make spurious claims that aren't scientifically or evidentially backed up then that becomes an issue as well. Yeah, that speaks again to audience research and questions of what what they understand. I mean, uh, from the journalistic internal normative spaces, bringing in those balanced voices is about, you know, showing the range of discussion about it, or they'll even say laudably it's about surfacing these ideas so we can understand them and challenge Mm -hmm. them, et cetera. Uh, But then there's the person saying, I heard on the news that, you know, and and that understanding is a hard one to to combat. You know, we always really, Mm -hmm. you know, and in the in the UK as well, particularly when we're in very uh, fierce political seasons, you can look at the statistics and see how figures from really minority political groups like UKIP get so much airtime compared to more dominant political groups like the Liberal Democrats who have a different message and agenda. So you've got to question like, what is the steer here? Is it objectivity or is it who's the most provocative people speaking? And it goes back to what you're saying about him being a shock jock as well, this kind of like approach to how we do media. But I wonder to like, I've, I've been fascinated by that application of 
shock jock for him because I don't I don't know his mm-hmm. his story, but in the perhaps a similar example in the United States would be Joe Rogan, who mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. very popular, perhaps the most popular podcast platform, you know, person personality like on the internet right now. He has political figures who's coming on. He has doctors and scientists and UFC fighters and historians and scholars of religion and others on in this sort of space in which he can present himself as someone who just wants to find out how things work. And so his pl- his platform kind of models this sort of free thinking, I'm going to do my own research to come up with what I think is the best thing for me approach that I think one could say, well, that's what we want journalism to do, right? Lay out the facts and guide people to seeing, okay, you have all the things you need, so now make a good decision, right? Be an informed citizen. And to me, someone like Joe Rogan says, yeah, that's what you want, so I'm going to give that to you, especially when usually what you see, at least in the American news, is the sort of, okay, here's party A and here's party B. We're going to give them equal airtime and let them duke it out, and that's going to count as news. And so this is, you know, these alternative platforms, I don't know if we can call podcasting an alternative platform at this point, uh, becomes a space to exemplify that kind of informed citizenry model within a certain network of people who are already buying in and subscribing and listening. And that creates these different constituencies that really make it hard for sort of the traditional I don't want to say traditional media. I think that a better way to say it would be like Naomi Goldenberg's, um, what does she call religions? Uh, vestigial states. It's, it makes it complicated for vestigial states to lay claim to authority because there's all these alternative networks that are doing what the vestigial states said they do, but are doing it more effectively when it comes to numbers and dollars and clicks and, and all of that. And I, and I guess the, the question I'm looking at now is, as I look out the window and see it raining, is, like, why? <laughs> like, why yeah. are people interested in what um, this guy who got let go of from the, the LBC or Joe Rogan or others have to say? And, the, and why do they care about the way they're saying it versus these other agencies? In, go ahead, please. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm just going to say, of course, you, I mean, uh, for many people that tie that into some sort of secularization theory and say that because people have lost these, as you say, vestigial states are no longer dominant. They're looking for things that do the same sort of work in their effective states and actually and give them that sense of stability and reasoning and providing answers to the things they're very confused about. I mean, I think... Stephen King actually had a wonderful bit in one of his books, I think it might be Dance Macabre, where he talks about the history of horror from about the 1940s to 1980s. And he talks about how conspiracy theories arise because of the weight of events. And he uses the the death of JFK in particular, and then obviously he went on later to write his time travel novel about JFK, that the significance of JFK in the public mind outweighed the fact that the actual moment of assassination and the person doing the assassination seemed so small that people had to kind of balance those two things and find more reasons why this thing happened to explain it. And for some people, that's a, that's an explanation of why people fall into these modes of thinking, that they're so looking for something that carries the weight. So when it comes to COVID, we, we know this happened because there's a virus and the virus doesn't care who it transmits to and it doesn't have reasons for doing these things. But we, we seek out those reasons because the weight of what's happening is so great 
the explanation that it's just a virus and this was going to happen because this is how biology works and pandemics work doesn't balance that in our minds. And that's one explanation. I'm not saying it's a definitive explanation, but that's one reason why people reach out for people like Joe Rogan, because he seems to give answers that provide weight that balances out the events that they're experiencing. I think, I mean, I looked previously at anti-vaxxers amongst the more kind of liberal new age white middle class of the global society but predominantly america and europe and that very much seemed to be what they were reaching for trying to find something that explained the weight of their personal experience in terms of a network of events and clues to to the reality that they were experiencing it it's great and i think in addition to what you talk about with weight and significance from a media perspective something else that a podcast and joe rogan is a good example that offers is time if people have the time there's yeah. a, a you know, sitting with someone and talking with them for a long time, you get to sort of ask all your questions, hear them out. It's not that sort of six minutes and then you interrupt them, stop over to you or we're done now the weather. It, it, it gives time. And so people feel they've had a fuller hearing for what this person's view is. But then the media scholarship side of it is just going to kick in and say that there's fooling ourselves to think that that is the real goods against what the, you know, legacy media, these vestigial spaces offer us because there's still selection going on too. I mean, there's loads of people that a Joe Rogan can have on. His team choose people say, we're going to get you on to talk about this. Why this person, not someone else. So there's still that active choice selection and construction that's going on there. So it is a perspective that is, is, is influencing the, the views that come through. I think everyone's assuming freedom yes. from the editor, which anyone who actually does podcasts like this one will know there is always Indeed. an editor involved in decisions and who gets on, who's invited, who volunteers. Well, it's probably a useful segue to say that uh, looking at the clock, we want to draw things up uh, soon. But I see Richard, you're about to mention something uh, before uh, uh, we end. Oh, okay, great. Well, then let's let's play the editor card and, uh, and wrap the things up there. It's been a great discussion uh, about some of these stories for the month of January. I want to just thank you again, Beth Singler from Cambridge and Richard Newton from Alabama for joining us here. And I'm Michael Munnick from Cardiff University. It's been a great chat. Do pay attention to this and all the podcasts and other information that comes with the Religious Studies Project. Great to have you and enjoy the rest of your days. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartasius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.